Hello, and thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. You know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the interesting research being done by folks using the collections at the Hagley Library, especially scholars who have received support from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joining me today is Dr. Jason Barr, professor at Rutgers University, Newark, and we're going to discuss his project titled John J. Raskob and the Economics of the Empire State Building. Jason, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. You're welcome. Why don't you introduce us to your topic? What is it that you're researching and writing about? Well, um, I've always been interested in the Empire State Building, and I'm always interested in New York City history. But one of the things that I've always found intriguing was these kind of like myths about the building. I mean, one of them has always has been this idea of uh, the economics of it was just irrational. The building was too tall. Um, after it opened up in uh, 1931, the Great Depression was really starting to get underway. And it had this nickname as the empty state building. And so you, you, you sort of have this uh, sort of set of kind of conventional wisdoms that the building was too tall. It was a ridiculous investment. And yet here we are in the 21st century, the building's 90 years old. It's sort of a beloved icon of New York. So there's this kind of dual thinking about the building. So my interest was to kind of go back and look at some of the original, uh, you know, the documents that are at Hagley, for example, and, and sort of see what, what the developers were thinking, what the, what the income was like, what the cost was like, and, and just sort of follow the trail and see if I can get a little bit more information about what was really going on at the time and also during the Great Depression. How was the Empire State Building Project conceived? Well, originally, um, okay, so on the site was the uh, Waldorf Astoria Hotel and they wanted to move. So they, but, and because it was Waldorf and Astoria, it actually originally was conceived as one hotel and then it became the Waldorf Astoria, two hotels. So it was this huge plot of land. So they decided they were going to move because their the Waldorf Astoria was sort of outdated and it wasn't it wasn't really in like the hip kind of kind of neighborhood where the sort of gilded age and and um, robber barons and all so forth they didn't want to hang out there so they wanted to move so they had this huge lot they put it up uh, on the market and um, originally um, this guy named um, Floyd Brown, who is a, real estate, a local real estate developer in New York, bought the lot, but he defaulted. He couldn't make the payments to buy the lot. And so then through basically a series of a chain of events, it wound up in the hands of, uh, of the developers, which who was the lead developer was John Raskob. And, and one of the big, his big supporters uh, and financial investors was also Pierre DuPont. So um, um, Raskob with support of DuPont and then Raskob with, uh, brought in uh, Adam, um, I'm sorry, um, brought in uh, the, the governor, Al Smith, the former governor of Al Smith and his friend. And so really Al Smith and Raskob were the lead uh, developers who, who sort of conceived of and pushed forward the, the construction of the Empire State Building. And this would be in the 1930s, uh, 1920s rather? Exactly. So they basically took control of the property in late summer, early fall of 1929. Um, and then they worked on the financing. They did some um, you know, real estate kind of uh, planning. They, they sort of 
uh, hired some consultants to sort of figure out what kind of income, uh, you know, they, they hired the, uh, the contractors, uh, Starr Brothers and Eakin. And so in the fall of 1929 is when everything got laid out and, and they basically made all the decisions. Um, and then, you know, construction really took place over uh, 1930 and the building opened up formally on May 1st, 1931. That's an incredibly fast turnaround. Yeah, it was record speed. Um, I mean, there are a few reasons of that. First of all, was because the the renting season always began on May 1st of every year. So if you were going to (laughs) get your contract signed and get the building filled with uh, tenants, the building had to be open by May 1st of any year. So they decided to uh, green light the project in the fall of 1929. And and, and, basically, like they said, they turned to their uh, construction company, Starrett Brothers and Eakins, they said to him, when, when's as soon as you can get this thing open? You know, when's the first May 1st you can get open? And so they said, okay, well, let's try to do this for May 1st, 1931. And they were able to do it. Starrett Brothers and Eakin were like the go-to uh, general contractors for sky, skyscrapers in, you know, New York and the U.S. So these guys, they had uh, been in the business for decades. They had actually also had the contract for uh, the Bank of Manhattan building which was at 40 Wall Street, and which was also built sort of about a year behind at record speed. So the general contractors, they knew the inside and out of how to build a super tall building rapidly. And, um, you know, they made it happen, basically. What was Raskob's vision for this project? Well, I mean, I mean, the bottom line, I would say, is the bottom line. I mean, I think he envisioned uh, building an office building, a very tall office building that would um, be profitable. Um, he also, I think, envisioned uh, trying to uh, spur kind of like a, a, an economic uh, redevelopment of the area, which was Fifth Avenue and 34th Street, sort of to the west of that had become part of the garment district, more industrial, more lofts. Um, and so I think they had envisioned sort of trying to create, they had envisioned creating a class A office building that would lure some of the um, higher end offices a little bit further south. Of course, the Great Depression, you know, um, may, uh, sort of burst that bubble or burst that idea. Um, but I think fundamentally it was about making money. Secondarily, it was about, you know, maybe some of the ego was there. I mean, there's no doubt that these guys had big egos, that they really wanted to use their building to kind of project their, um, their whether it's their perceptions of themselves or, or something like that. But, but one of the key takeaways about all of this research is that the bottom line was really the bottom line. The, um, the, comp- the high competition with Chrysler, um, the, the, the mooring mast spire that they added later on, all of these things were expensive, but they were certainly not um, so expensive that they um, ate into the project the projected profits. I mean, they were projecting profits based on numbers that they were crunching in the fall of 1929. So, you know, that this is a big question. Of like the numbers that they were crunching in the fall of 29, like how what kind of standard should we hold them to? Uh, when things really started to go south a year or two later, you know, I mean, no, anyway, that, that's a big question about like, mm. what, what should we expect from developers when they're projecting into the future? And, and you know, that's not a question that's easily answerable. 
Well, what about then what did end up happening um, once the building opens in 1931? Um, was, uh, whoa, were they able to fill it? Uh, were they able to find tenants? It was not an auspicious time to be trying to do this. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you should, um, well, and that's, well, I was just in, in, in thinking about today's chat here. I was looking at some of the photographs I, I took when I was down at the Hagley Archives. So in the 1930s uh, or ni early 1931, when they opened, the building only had about 25% of its uh, rentable space actually leased. So they, they had, when originally they had crunched the numbers in, nine, early, in late 1929, they, they had expected something like revenues, revenues from the offices to be about 7 million. When they opened up, I mean, it was like 25% of that. Um, however, I don't, you know, one thing I don't think people realize was that the original uh, conception, like in 1929, was an 80-story office building. But um, they, 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 they were able to buy another lot. They were able to kind of go taller and they wanted to go taller in part because of this competition with uh, Walter Chrysler. So when they went taller, so after their original plan, they decided, okay, we're going to add some more height. And then it was that point when they were saying, oh, we're going to add this mooring mast. Oh, and since the mooring mast is going to be on the roof, this has this new space for us. That would do as, uh, will create as an observation deck. So the observation deck sort of was this kind of almost like this afterthought. Anyway, during the Great Depression, the observation deck was earning almost as much, um, if not more. Oh, actually, yeah, okay. So I'm looking at this. Between, in May, uh, in the year of 1931, um, well, this says operating forecast. So the rental income was about 900,000 and the observation deck was about 750,000. So um, that observation deck, which became kind of like an afterthought, was pumping in a lot of money that um, kind of helped them. Um, it wasn't the only thing that got them through the Great Depression, but the Observations Act was a big source of extra money. Yeah, and a way to invite the public to um, experience and even claim part of um, this new construction, this new vision. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that I think that's part of the enduring um, love of the Empire State Building is that people can, you know, go up there. Um, so, so what happened is, um, yeah, so the original conception was an 80-story office building. Then when they kind of got caught up in this competition, they added this mooring mast uh, at, the, at the end of 1929. They had this idea of a mooring mast. So the idea was that airships <laughs> would come into New York City, would dock you know, these airships would dock at the top of the Empire State Building, and then the, the passengers would sort of disembark, and they would go down the elevator, and then they'd be on, you know, Fifth Avenue, 34th Street, just go about, <laughs> go about their lives. Um, so the mooring mast was never, um, it was never really workable. The winds up there are just too crazy, and it was just never workable. Um, but the mooring mast then you know, it produces the light shows and, you know, on, on 4th of July, it's red, white, and blue. On St. Patrick's Day, it's green, you know. So, so that's another element of the way the Empire State Building has sort of engaged with New York and the rest of the world was just sort of through this kind of like, um, you know, this little extra add-on. Um, yeah, so in, in a way, I, I think what the research shows is, is like their ego and their desire to kind of compete and to show off, that actually made the building more successful than if they had just sort of gone ahead with their original like 
more mon mundane uh, 80 story uh, office building. Yeah, by, uh, by adding personality to the building and interactivity. Exactly, the observation deck, the, the, the lights that can, you know, the morning, this is just the architectural design, the morning mast, exactly. So in a way, their, their, <laughs> their ego made the building a much more like socially interactive uh, building. So yeah. I think it's one of the great ironies of the, of the building. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, what collections in the Hagley Library did you dig into to help you uncover this story? Uh, sure. Well, there are two sets of files. Um, one is from John Raskob himself. Um, it, it, something I learned down there when I got down there was that there's there was two companies. There was one called Empire State Inc. Um, and then there was another one uh, with a similar name, uh, something like the Empire State Corporation. Okay, so <laughs> when I was at home and I was looking at the website and trying to uh, understand uh, what Hagley had, I just assumed they were either two versions of the same thing or what. So when I got down there, this is what I discovered. So Empire State Inc. is the name of the company that built the building. Mm -hmm. The other company was formed by Raskob after things really started to go bad with the Empire State Building and they needed extra money because he, he was one of the investors. So, you know, he sort of had to keep everything together because he it was he had pumped in so much of his money. And if this building fell away from him and his control, he would have lost all that money he put into it. So the, the uh, Raskob was known at the time as a kind of a financial genius, a financial guru. Um, he had made his money um, both as an executive at General Motors. He had made his money uh, on the playing the stock market. Um, so, what he did was, um, so in the, uh, during the Great Depression, he went to Pierre Dupont, who was his uh, friend and had been his, you know, his mentor. And um, he said, okay, uh, I don't know how to, I just try to explain this as best as I can. So Pierre Dupont had an annuity. It was basically like a retirement fund. So uh, Dupont had been putting all this money, uh, kicking it away into savings. And then uh, it would just, every year, the annuity would just pay out a, a lump sum of money that would just be for money that DuPont could, um, you know, could use and, and, and enjoy. So uh, Raskob went to Pierre DuPont, purchased the annuity. So in other words, uh, he, he got uh, the, the, the money, the, the annuity was transferred from DuPont to Raskob. The Empire State Building also invested in this annuity. So some of the money from this savings account was going into the Empire State Building in the form of income to sort of prop up the finances. <laughs> so that was one of the things which, um, you know, I found quite interesting was even though the observation deck was paying a lot of money, the rental income was not really enough to cover uh, the, the mortgage payments. Um, and so he needed extra money to- How long does- how long did that arrangement last? Um, that's a good question. They they started to dissolve that. He that dissolved that um, that Rask uh, dissolved that corporation. I believe in the 1940s. So hmm. probably lasted about 10 years. After you know, in the 1940s, things really started to pick up um, economically. So um, 
the, the problem with the Empire State Building was always that it made enough money to cover its operating expenses, but in the depression, it wasn't making enough money to also pay the financing costs. Mm -hmm. um, and so then by the 1940s, uh, things really started to look bright. And in fact, by 1950, I think Raskob died in 1950, I believe. And then his heirs sold the building in 1951 and they sold it for a lot of money. So, um, yeah, there's some great records about, um, you know, the income and the profits and all this um, in those files. <laughs> well, that's great. Now, when you were digging around in the archives, was there a particular document or source that was very exciting to find or made the light bulb just go off? <laughs> well, um, me being... Uh, just sort of in love with this topic. I mean, it, to me, it's it's almost like um, every time you put a nickel in the uh, slot machine, you get the you get ching 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 ching. So uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. I mean, so <laughs> there's all these great pictures. There's all these great photographs. Um, there's photographs. Oh, the something I found interesting was the Empire State Club. So in the building, they had their separate club and they had a little um, little pamphlet that tell you about how to be a member and what were the perks of, of joining the club. Um, and then to me, I'm an economist. So just seeing all the financial statements, um, you know, I, I worked on, a, um, you know, I put together, I did, did an academic paper with a co-author. And so basically, you know, he, he's, in, he's in Berlin. So at, at the time I was down at Hagley, I'd be emailing him and I'd be like, hey, what do you think of these numbers? What do you think of these numbers? And then I would show him pictures and he would crunch the numbers and he would do the kind of the, the, the investment analysis. So what we did for that paper was this kind of like long run kind of return on investment type analysis. We compared the long run, um, you know, profits, long run profits to the stock market and things like this. And so <laughs> every time I get one of these, um, you know, financial statements, I'd be emailing them the pictures and crunching the numbers, stuff like that. So uh, <laughs> I don't know, I could go on and on for hours about um, what to me are really just um, tons of fascinating documents. Mm -hmm. So I'll just say this, Raskov's got good stuff, but DuPont's got even more stuff. I mean, because he he was he seems to have been a more of a, a more um, um, more of a record keeper for whatever reason. I have some other stuff too, but you know whatever I could talk about it for hours. <laughs> well, well, what did you conclude in terms of um, the return on investment as represented by the development of this building? Um, over the long run, actually, it turned out quite well. Um, when they sold the building originally, they sold it for like a record high amount. And the reason they sold it for a record high amount is because by the late forties, um, it was really profitable. Um, the observation deck was profitable firms. Um, you, you know, there was in the depression firms where businesses were reluctant to rent space just because their business was so bad, but eventually the building filled up. Um, the observation deck was great. Uh, they also, because of the mooring mass, they were able to put on this uh, giant uh, TV antenna. So that was another source of income. Um, and really, um, you know, to, to be kind of corny about this, what, what many people think were um, 
sort of visions of grandeur was really, uh, you know, a, a, a grand vision, a, re- a vision that really panned out. I mean, it was sad for Raskob and perhaps also DuPont uh, during the depression because they had to live with like the burden. But um, at the end of the day, you know, for over the very long run, uh, it, it was actually, it was actually a sound and clever investment. Yeah, what could have appeared as a folly turned out to be um, exactly, pro- exactly. What, what mm-hmm. appeared, you know, this idea of the empty state building uh, was, you know, people people laughed at the building. How could you do this? How could you put two million square feet of market in the Great Depression? Well, my response to that two things is in in the in in fall of 1929. Actually, when you look at what they were projecting, it wasn't really that far away from what most real estate developers at the time were doing. And number two, if you, you know, you had to hold on for 15, 20 years, which is, you know, it was a long time, but did pay off. I mean, it really, not only did it pay off financially, but it, it's always been just the beloved icon of New York. I wonder if you can speak a little bit more to the legacy of this development and what the building means uh, to the city and perhaps even as a symbol of the city, um, uh, more generally speaking? Well, I mean, I mean, New York and the Empire State Building, almost two sides of the same coin, I would say. Um, the other thing is, I think, I think the rest of the world looks at the Empire State Building as a kind of a role model, as a kind of like something that they would all like to have. Um, you know, whether it's the Shanghai Tower or even the Burj Khalifa or, or maybe the Shard in London. I mean, I think implicitly is this idea that, you know, New York had done it in the 20s and they had their kind of record-breaking skyscrapers and they've become part of the identity of the city. Um, I mean, you know, um, I mean, uh, you know, the the people hated the uh, Twin Towers when they were built, but you know, when, when something's gone, you know, you really, you really feel a hole. And, you know, so I think New York uh, really, perhaps even more now uh, appreciates um, its Empire State Building. And um, yeah, and just going up on the observation deck alone is just sort of worth, <laughs> it's just <laughs> priceless. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not only a symbol of this city, but almost a symbol of what it means to be a modern city at all. Yeah, you know, at, at the risk of being corny, I think it's sort of an icon of our shared humanity, of our striving uh, for our strivingness, our <laughs> our desire to be modern and to be new and to be um, and to use our modern technology to uh, to create great cities, great metropolises. So um, it's not just New York's building, you know, it's planet Earth's building. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Would you have any advice for other economists considering uh, conducting archival research, perhaps especially at Hagley, but more generally, what um, what does it mean for you as an economist to conduct research in the archive? Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, most economists, they tend to think, well, I have a couple of responses. Most economists tend to sort of think about like kind of big ideas, a macro economy or a city but I think by going into archives like Hagley and looking at specific projects, it really can inform 
kind of like the underlying economics, the institutional framework, the, the history. I think really a lot is to be learned by going into the details and the, looking at the details of a particular project like the Empire State Building can inform, you know, sort of our broader understanding of how cities work, how economy, you know, how real estate markets work. Um, so I think that's, you know, I think I, I'm a firm believer in archival work as discovering not only forgotten elements or misunderstood elements of our past, but as being useful to sort of inform um, our economic history and our economic present for that matter. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that's important. Um, I'm sorry, I think there was some other part of the question, but um, I'll, I'll let you go on with, uh, with uh, if you have a follow up or something like that. Uh, well, it was just a, what does it mean to you um, as an economist doing work in uh, the historical archive? Okay, well, it, I mean, it just to me, it's it's like this window into a mm -hmm. world that we've forgotten about that maybe is not well understood. So I just get excited to see this stuff because, you know, I'm applying because I'm applying my modern uh, economic methods to data that has been forgotten about, you know, so to me. Um, it, I, I think, it, you know, it's a professional opportunity to see the world in a new way uh, and in a way that most economists aren't thinking about. So, uh, you know, so I hope to kind of, you know, in some small way, excite economists to think about going back to archives and, and sort of seeing what was happening back there, back then. Um, yeah, because like I said, I think there's a lot to learn from that. Yeah, there's the, the thrill of the, the discovery and the detective work. Yeah, exactly. That's also part of it. I mean, it's just stumbling on these documents and, you know, it, there's these funny letters with Raskob and, 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 um, and DuPont, you know, people, uh, DuPont had this, obviously this huge circle of, of, of um, you know, I, I, I'm, so this is sort of personal rather than professional, but it, these people would, uh, e would, e would email, <laughs> would write letters to uh, DuPont asking for him to get them contracts or get them some favor related to the Empire State Building. You know, he's like, oh, well, oh, thank you very much for your letter. I'll just pass it along. You know, he, he would sort of politely respond or <laughs> he would try to, he would, he would write a letter to Raskop saying, uh, well, what can we do for this guy? <laughs> so, um, you know, actually the other thing too is if you, developers today, just sort of by the nature of their profession, you know, they, they kind of keep their cards close to their vest. So when you go to uh, archival material, you could see stuff that um, would almost be impossible to get today. So it, it, it sort of um, let, lets you see into a, a window into um, a kind of a private world um, you know, and it's not just data, it's also just sort of seeing how this private world tended to function. Um, you know, cynical people might say, oh, well, it's all connections and, and rich, rich, rich guys helping out rich guys. But, you know, it's, it's sort of a window into a part of our kind of uh, our humanity and our, our experiences. And the flip side of the economy that you can't always read through the data, but in the archive with these exchanges of letters and um, more personal uh, recollections. Um, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it can inform our knowledge of the economy and how it really works. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And the other thing too is they have lists of all of the, you know, for many years, not all the years, especially during the depression, they have lists of who is renting um, space in the Empire mm-hmm. Space. Yeah. So what the companies were, who they were, um, you know, that's a whole other project, which um, I eventually will hope to do, but I'd like to do a little bit more digging about who these companies were that were renting space, what happened to them, uh, how did they, were they, you know, what was their role in New York's sort of economic history and things like this. So um, the, the, the thing is, you go down there and all of a sudden you see these documents and it just begats more questions, which, you know, which sort of turns into this kind of uh, sense of like, oh, I could probably spend... Um, several years you know just just deciphering and researching more about you know what's hinted at in these uh documents uh well jason thank you so much for sharing your work and i can't see i can't wait to see where it goes next oh that's great yeah it's been a lot of fun i really i really enjoyed my time down at the archives and um yeah and i, I found it very exciting <laughs> <laughs> And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business Technology and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, why don't you join us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>